are listening to The Addiction Files, where we discuss evidence-based treatment, clinical pearls and resources, while striving to destigmatize the treatment of addiction in our medical culture and save lives. We are the addiction doctors, Dr. Darlene Peterson and Paula Cook. Welcome to The Addiction Files. We are discussing phenobarbital, do's and don'ts in alcohol withdrawal management. This came up out of a discussion that Paula and I were having on how Paula was just kind of sometimes seeing some sloppy use of this. This can be helpful. It's an emerging trend that's coming and we're seeing sometimes more and more use of this and it can be very helpful, but it does also have some cautions as well. So we're going to talk about that. And I'll get us started a little bit with just some of the history and Paula, you're going to jump in. This is an old drug, first came out in 1904, and it was initially synthesized by Fisher and then brought on the market in 1912, back by Bayer as a brand name Luminol. So I think that's where most of us first heard heard that name originally. Mm -hmm. So it was one of the most commonly prescribed sedatives and hypnotics until the emergence of benzodiazepines in the 60s. And then it had kind of a, unfortunately, a really kind of sordid history, but used as kind of a euthanasia agent by the Hitler regime. And I don't I don't know if you want to go into any of that, Paula, but that's kind of a terrible history. Yeah, well, I mean, to honor, you know, to honor the people who suffered at the hands of Nazi Germany, it, we can mention it and so that we can remember it with kind of reverence when we use it, actually, I think, because I didn't know this. So now that we yeah. do, we can we can do that. And I guess in 1939, uh, this is according to Wikipedia, I learned this, German family asked Hitler to have their disabled son killed. This was a five-month-old child, and he was given a lethal dose of luminol after Hitler sent his doctor to examine the child. And then a few days later, 15 psychiatrists were summoned to Hitler's chancellery and directed to commence a clandestine program of involuntary euthanasia for disabled children. And at a clinic in Ansbach, Germany, in 1940, so just a year later, around 50 intellectually disabled children were killed, were murdered uh, with injections of luminol. So that's just, that's pretty horrific. So we just put that out there that that happened and honor the history, tell the story. A plaque was erected in their memory in 1988 at a local hospital in Fuchtwanger. Yeah, Fuchtwanger. Really, yeah, really terrible. I, I had no, I did not know that either. Yeah. It's really unfortunate. Yeah. So some of the uses, Paula, do you want to go, let's talk about that a little bit. So we know most of the common uses, seizures, like not absent seizures, it's not very effective for that. Insomnia, anxiety, and then what we are going to talk about, alcohol and benzodiazepine withdrawal. Yeah. And it, you know, it lists a use for insomnia and anxiety, but I've never seen it used for that reason. Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't know if you have, but, you know, theoretically it, it would be helpful because it's a sedative hypnotic, but we don't see it used for that purpose because of its pharmacokinetic and dynamic properties. So we have better options for insomnia and anxiety. So tell us a little about that. Let's talk about the metabolism, its bioavailability, those things. 
Yeah, well, phenobarbital is metabolized through the liver and it is a cytochrome P450 enzyme inducer. So that makes it a little bit tricky to use. So you have to use caution when you're using it with other medications that involve the cytochrome P450 system because it can induce the metabolism of medications um, who use those pathways. One which is notorious for this is uh, methadone. So um, you do need to dose adjust for hepatic impairment and also actually have to adjust for renal disease. And there's cautions and we're going to talk about contraindications, but you you shouldn't use it in hepatic failure or severe hepatic disease because the liver cannot metabolize it well. And um, it has a very long half-life. And like any sedative hypnotic drugs with a long half-life, you really want to be careful with people who have hepatic impairment because the do doses really do accumulate. Uh, the half-life is a little bit variable, depends on which website you look at, but it has a long half-life anywhere from four to 118 hours. We typically tell people that it's really is going to stick around for days and days and days. This is one of the benefits of phenobarbital is because it has such a long half-life, it self-tapers. And I think this is why it has emerged as a very useful loading dose medication and is listed in loading dose protocols for the treatment of alcohol withdrawal syndrome in the emergency department because patients can be given one dose and then discharged without a prescription um, to taper off of other medications like shorter acting benzodiazepines. Of course, there are problems with medications with such a hard, long half-life where you don't have any control once it's been given and you have to watch for accumulating doses. Yeah. But what's one of the properties that we're kind of excited about, and I think we've talked about this a lot on the podcast, um, we're generally seeking long-acting medications for the treatment of addiction. Now, this is only used for withdrawal syndromes, and so we have to ch carefully choose which patients are good candidates for very long-acting withdrawal medications because we don't want to get in over our heads with a patient who's otherwise frail and vulnerable, and then you can't back off. So that's something to remember. It has a fast onset. It's given via all routes. So you can give it parenterally, IV, IM, uh, PO. And it's often given IV in the ICU setting and in the ED setting and um, in the you know, in the inpatient setting, not in the ICU or in the outpatient setting, which honestly shouldn't be used in the outpatient setting uh, very much, or if at all, then, you know, give it orally and it has onset about 30 minutes. And the peak effect is in about eight to 12 hours, which is quite delayed, but can be quite helpful again, if you don't want to um, incite sedation. So if you're trying to minimize sedation, then this is a good choice. Definitely. we it's not recommended in pregnancy. It's a category D. We don't want to use that. What are some of the other like, side effects in general that we want to be aware of with this medication? Because it does have like, inc increased risk of suicide. And this was not something that I was initially aware of, Paula, were you? No, I, I didn't know that either. It does have a risk of abuse. And I had a patient um, at the hospital that I was working at inpatient who was admitted with primary drug of choice, phenobarbital. She was using her dog's prescription of phenobarbital. So it's quite a common veterinary medication for dogs with seizure disorder. And her dog was being prescribed monthly phenobarbital. And she had gotten addicted to it and was using it in really high amounts and came in because she couldn't stop using it, you know, was craving it, compulsive use, increasing negative consequences. And so it does have an abuse potential because it's a sedative hypnotic and it's a schedule 
for medication. It is scheduled, so it has an abuse uh, risk for sure. That's And when we talk about the mechanism, we can kind of talk a little bit about why that's so. But yeah, it does have increased risk of suicide, addiction, withdrawal syndrome, if people are tolerant to it. Mm-hmm. And it has other kind of immediate um, side effects of sedation, of course, because it's a hypnotic and a sedative and hypnosis. That's the desired effect in some cases. It can cause dizziness and ataxia. And I think that's what I hear the most from patients who I use this with. I use this medication a lot. Actually, our mentor, Dr. Beth Howell, who's been on the podcast, uh, how long, many times? Three times? At least. <laughs> yeah, she's kind of an expert in phenobarbital. In fact, she's presenting you, Darlene just told me she's presenting at the CSAM conference in August of 2023 on phenobarbital. I can't wait. You know, we always talked about this, that patients will sometimes complain that they don't feel quite well. They're dizzy or ataxic and off balance. They may be overdosed a little bit or they may just be responding, you know, to it, especially if they have a vulnerable brain. You want to be careful using it in patients who have encephalopathy of any reason or older, more frail patients. And of course, at higher doses, if you push the dose or if patients overdose themselves, they have risk of decreased level of consciousness and a decreased effort to breathe, which can be devastating and patients can become comatose and of course die if they have toxic levels of the drug. I think that's really good. Yeah. I think backing up a little bit, tell us a little bit about the mechanism of action. So we know it's similar to benzodiazepines because we know it's in the sedative hypnotic category, but how does it work and how is it just a little bit, is this the same mechanism as GABA as our, as GABA on our benzodiazepines? How is it different, Paula? Well, it's an allosteric um, actor on inhibitory GABA receptors, neuroreceptors. So it does work in the same way as benzodiazepines. Well, similar way to benzodiazepines, it acts on GABA-A receptor complexes. The difference is that uh, phenobarbital increases the time or the duration that the GABA-A-related chloride channels are open. So the signal, it's like the gates open and they stay open, right? So the cars keep going through, the chloride channels go through, and that causes decreased activity of the postsynaptic neuron. And this is the decrease is an inhibitory drug. So it's calming everything down, which makes sense. It's an anti-seizure, anti-anxiety, hypnotic, sedative. So once you have this drug on board, it opens these chloride channels on the GABA-A receptor complex in the brain in the central nervous system. And the postsynaptic neuron, think about biology, then calms down. It's like, oh, okay. Now with benzodiazepines, They also act on the same complex. However, they open the frequency of the the, um, receptor. So the receptor doesn't open and stay open. It just opens and closes, opens and closes, opens and closes multiple times. So it's kind of like when you're waiting for the freeway and they have like the green light letting one car at a time go. It's kind of like that for benzos as opposed to the boom is up and everyone's going in with phenobarbital. One more difference that's actually really important um, to mention in regards to the difference between benzodiazepines and phenobarbital is phenobarbital acts directly on glutamate. So if you remember um, neurochemistry and neurobiology, GABA is an inhibitory 
neurotransmitter on the brain. It makes everything calm down. We just talked about that. Glutamate is a neurotransmitter that excites the brain. It makes everything excited and up. And it's actually probably highly correlated with seizures. Well, in alcohol withdrawal, if you chronically yeah. abuse alcohol, you inhibit glutamate. So that excitatory response just gets dampened down and dampened down, and you don't have a lot of glutamate in the brain. When you stop drinking alcohol, your brain starts pumping out glutamate, which is excitatory, and that's why you're more at risk for a seizing when you have alcohol withdrawal syndrome. So one of the benefits of phenobarbital and again, this is why it's actually an anti-seizure medication, is it blocks glutamate directly. So you've got dual purpose, dual mechanism um, activity on the brain when it comes to alcohol withdrawal. One, by increasing the activity of GABA. So you have increased inhibition, which is a bit of an oxymoron. And then also you have blocking of the excitatory glutamate neurotransmitter. So if you guys are nerding out about that, um, that's kind of the way it works. And we'll talk a little bit more about why we would choose it over benzodiazepines. And when we choose it, I want you to think back on the mechanism and say, oh, okay, I know why we would choose it then, because we want both of those activities. Thank you, Paula. I think you explained that so well. That is so great. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> You're that's welcome. Fan- that is fantastic. No, I mean, but I think that's a really, really important concept to understand and why this can be really helpful. And we'll get we're gonna get to it, but there's multiple studies, and that's what they've looked at. And sometimes these refractory patients and especially these ones with really severe DTs, why this can be really helpful. And so I think, again, we got to use all the tools in our toolbox. When do we not use this medication? Because we talked about a little bit, Paula already said hepatic failure, you do need to be really careful. And and thinking about that, that's that longer half-life. So you need to be cautious about that. It does have a little bit higher risk of that respiratory depression. So you need to think about that people with respiratory disorder, COPD, that is you do encounter patients with COPD fairly frequently in this populate. Pregnancy, breastfeeding. So you, this is really where we generally would not want to use phenobarbital. Obviously, hepatic encephalopathy, and then other neurological diseases. So, right. Then, I mean, I would I would just think that people with hepatic encephalopathy, they're already disoriented, confused, yes. vulnerable. And so you just think about the vulnerable brain. And do you really want to hit it really hard with a big sedative? Well, you have to if they're going through alcohol withdrawal, withdrawal but you want to use something that's much shorter acting yes. that you can back off within a few hours if, if they things start go to get, badly exactly yeah. if they start to get more encephalopathic you don't want to contribute to that and you do, certainly don't want to go into non-alcoholic delirium um, so you want to just be really careful that's why we avoid it in people who have vulnerable brain yeah. Although you could argue that everyone with severe alcohol use disorder has a vulnerable brain, but yeah. that's another, that's another yeah. topic. Yeah. And uses in addiction medicine, the one, and probably this is, we're seeing this trend more because, and I know you see this, Paula, I have ran into this, ben, patients coming in benzo, benzodiazepine withdrawal. So what, you know, you need, we need something else. They're already either withdrawing from alcohol and benzodiazepines, this is an increasing problem. Is 
evidence and there's a lot of support saying don't use this medication. So there is other like opinions, but there some say to just use it as an adjunctive medication for delirium tremors. And with lorazepam, that is very controversial. And that if you are ever doing that, you have to understand you have a very high risk of respiratory depression if you're using it with a benzodiazepine. And obviously, that should be only in an ICU setting. This would never be in an outpatient setting. And I I honestly have never seen any protocols even on the using this on the floor without continuous monitoring. So tell me a little bit more like that, because I think that's where you have ran into and to some issues. And I know that you have written really great protocols for like the hospital where you work at and other programs that you've worked in to try to avoid these pitfalls and why it's become controversial is because I think we see too much blending is people will start somebody on a benzodiazepine and either they're underdosed on the benzodiazepine or they're, I, I think honestly what it is, is we sometimes didn't get great histories in the beginning. And this person was probably withdrawing from alcohol and benzodiazepines and weren't doing well. And then we just throw phenobarbital on top. And that that's where I think we're sometimes getting into trouble. And so I think it's really one of those is we need to have good, we need to have very good protocols to start with, correct? Yeah, uh, yes, correct. But I'm going to play devil's advocate as well, because phenobarbital is really an amazing medication, Mm -hmm. very, very helpful. And I do think that people end up adding phenobarbital per some protocols that have been validated when people are decompensating with maximum use of benzodiazepines. Yes. Also, because benzodiazepines can sometimes have a paradoxical response in some patients and they get agitated and delirious and you can't figure out are they delirious because their withdrawal is worsening or are they delirious because they're getting so many benzodiazepines just like if we give a lot of benzos to someone who's 70 you know they typically don't tolerate it well Um, and so we see people adding or changing to phenobarbital when a benzodiazepine um, you know withdrawal is not going well and so you know there's just added risk with that so that's why I really agree with you that we want to be very careful with this. They need a high level of monitoring because once you have had benzodiazepines on the same receptor set and you add a barbiturate, you're going to really compound the GABA activity and people can get profound respiratory depression. Um, however, you know, and you're right, we need to understand how to use the medication because of the risks. But in many ways, phenobarbital is safer than benzodiazepines for patients with alcohol withdrawal. So I think what we do, and I I think that's why I wanted to do this episode, is we need to move forward with real clear a real clear pathway on how to use it safely and use it with experience so that and gain some experience with it so that when when a patient could benefit from it, we're not, you know, we're not going back and forth between the two and that we're using it in a way based on its, you know, bio. Um, it's bioavailability, it's pharmacokinetics and dynamics. So who's the right patient for that? Well, we talked about who's not the right patient, yeah. but who is the right patient? You already said it. People who are withdrawing from benzos, you're dead right. I agree with you. Patients who are withdrawing from both alcohol and benzos, that's not too 
infrequent or people who are withdrawing from say alcohol and gabapentin or any of those mixtures of sedative hypnotics, maybe phenobarbital would be a good fit. And why do we like to use it for benzodiazepine withdrawal? Well, you can, that's not the title of this podcast, but we should talk about it really briefly. You can treat benzodiazepine withdrawal syndrome just with benzodiazepines. You know, if you look up any protocol, that's that's what we do. We typically choose a longer benzodiazepine and use that to treat their withdrawal. So if someone's withdrawing from Ativan or from Xanax, we use Librium or maybe diazepam. However, that's not always, it's always it can be very difficult for people to undergo a rapid withdrawal management with a benzodiazepine if their drug that they've been using and abusing as a benzodiazepine. So this is like, this is something learned from Dr. Howell as you switch to phenobarbital, it's a totally different medication and a different category. And they feel, it feels different on their brain. It's hitting the receptor in a slightly different way. You have that added benefit of the glutamate um, downregulation. Yes. And, um, and people do really, really well. So it's good for those people. So think about it you know, putting people in the hospital and using it for benzodiazepine withdrawal or mixed withdrawal states. And honestly, I've used it quite a lot for patients who just haven't done well with benzos in the past. They have had paradoxical reaction or that just makes them feel really loopy, or they either get over sedated or they don't respond at all. And I think we've all seen that. So you put people on a tiny bit of Librium and they're just completely loopy, but they're still hyper intensive and tachycardic. So phenobarbital would be a good choice for them. Or you give them lorazepam because they have, you know, reason to have a shorter acting benzo and they get really agitated and start hallucinating and delirious, then phenobar would be a good choice for them as well. And I'd say the one, the other time, which is probably the elephant in the room that you would use phenobarbital, and we're going to reference some papers, is it's so long acting that you can use a loading dose and then be done with it. Or you can use a couple of loading doses right in the beginning. And then because it has such a long half-life, it will just self-taper. So it reduces ICU stays, it reduces um, hospitalizations, and it has some other outcomes in the literature, like it reduction of adjunctive medications and reduction of seizure activity. So I can see why if you're an emergency medicine doc and you're thinking, oh man, I've got to give this guy Ativan every hour, every two hours, and then what do I do when it's time to send him home because I don't have anywhere to admit him or he refuses to be admitted? Phenobarbital could be an option and there's a lot of protocols that back this up to give one loading dose of phenobarbital, it could certainly help this person's withdrawal for a couple of days without giving them an outpatient prescription of Librium or Ativan, which we really try to avoid, like we don't want to do because of the risk of re-drinking, um, or you don't know what's happening with how much they're taking. So that that's when to use it. Um, and we can talk a little bit about the indications um, for that. Yeah. Tell us some more about that, Paula. Let's go into some of those indications. Okay. Well, yeah. we talked already about why it's why it's good. So yeah. who it's good for. And we talked about that it binds both GABA and glutamate. And it so it helps withdrawal in that dual purpose. And it also has a really predictable metabolism. So we talked about that it has a long half-life, three to five days. So one dose can last for three to five days as opposed to a few hours. I mean, even Librium doesn't last quite as long as that. And after you give an initial loading dose, um, like in the emergency department or in the hospital, then you can monitor them and maybe you can give them more phenobarbital as needed to overcome residual withdrawal, but you may not even need to. So, you know, we can talk a little bit about some protocols in a minute, but um, 
there are kind of this like a tree of there's some guidelines as to when you would use it. So is the, are they a good candidate? Are they in alcohol withdrawal? Do they have no neurological disease or liver disease or significant lung disease? They're not on HIV, like retrovirals or methadone. Then yeah, you could probably use it, um, especially if benzodiazepines are not, haven't been effective in the past. And then you go through the protocol of how, of how to do that. Um, there's a paper written and published in the Journal of Medical Toxicology in January of 2020 written by author Lieben et al. And they talk, uh, the title of the paper is Return Encounters in Emergency Department Patients Treated with Phenobarbital Versus Benzodiazepines for Alcohol Withdrawal. This is an important paper because it looks at an outcome that we haven't talked about that yet, and that is revisiting the ED, return to ED visit within three days compared to not. And they looked at 470 patients who were discharged with a diagnosis of alcohol withdrawal, and they gave 235 of them benzos, 133 of them phenobarb, and 102 of them a combination of the two. And characteristics in all the groups were kind of equalized. And what they found is that the patients who received phenobarb were given more overall lorazepam equivalents to those who just received lorazepam alone. However, the patients who received phenobarbital were much less likely to return to the ED within three days of the index encounter versus the ones who received um, benzodiazepines, either in combination or by themselves. So I think that's interesting. Could that prove efficacy? Is that due to the higher equivalency doses or is it just due to the medication? There are actually a lot more papers that go into this. And if you look up, if you're in emergency medicine, you know what I'm talking about. Or if you follow the emergency medicine literature, there's many articles that are published about the use of um, phenobarbital in the emergency room um, to reduce, you know, um, alcohol withdrawal symptoms and return visits. What's your uh, comment? So what is your typical loading doses? Because there, I also see different, I mean, this is usually on milligrams per kilogram mm -hmm. of yeah. ideal body weight, right. correct? Right. And for alcohol, so the use of phenobarbital differs for alcohol withdrawal management as it does to seizure management. But mm -hmm. the most common regimen, the most common regimen that is in my head always is 10 milligrams per kilogram of ideal body weight as a loading dose. Now that's a lot. Yeah. Um, and I have to say, I have only used that in an inpatient setting when I've had pharmacy support, when I have continuous pulse oximetry monitoring, but that is an ideal loading dose. So you want to make sure it's ideal body weight and not actual body weight. So you want to calculate that. Um, but what you would do is calculate someone's ideal body weight, give them 10 milligrams per kilogram in an IV bolus, monitor them and repeat as needed. Honestly, that might be enough to really reduce blood pressure, heart rate, uh, sweats, tremor, headache, et cetera, et cetera. And then there are some recommendations that say you could go up as high as 20 milligrams per kilogram total dose. But what you've got to watch is if you give an initial loading dose IV and then you give repeat doses every two hours, you don't want to ever give a cumulative dose to anyone of more than 20 milligrams per kilogram. So that could be over five, because remember five days. So you don't want to, during their whole hospitalization or throughout the whole um, treatment course, want to exceed 20 milligrams per kilogram of ideal body weight, which is actually quite a lot, but you want to keep track of that because as opposed to the IV loading protocol, so 
I would just keep in your head 10 megs per kg, ideal body weight, initial bolus, and then monitor for response. You can use adjunctive medications with it, but you want to be very careful about using other benzodiazepines or other medications that depress breathing like opioid agonists because people will dip down. Or if you're using an oral um, regimen, you could do one of two things. You can also do a loading dose. Um, we commonly use 260 milligrams or 264 milligrams, and then we watch and wait to see the response. And we can repeat 134 milligrams in, in two to six hours, and then repeat that one more time and then just wait and see, or you can do, so that's number two. So either IV number one, where you have really high level of monitoring. Number two would be an oral regimen where you give them a big oral dose. It's very, it's very bioavailable, like 95%. So that can be very effective if you have time to wait. By the way, it can also be used prophylactically. So if you know someone is headed down a path mm -hmm. of severe alcohol withdrawal, we don't typically pre-dose people with benzos in that situation, but you no. can certainly do it with phenobar because remember, the peak onset is 8 to 12 hours, so it's perfect to give it kind of in advance of people beginning to escalate. The third way you can use it, and I couldn't find as many protocols for this, but this is certainly how you can use it, is you can use it like you would use a long-acting benzodiazepine and estimate a daily dose that's equivalent to the amount they've been drinking and divide it, you know, TID or BID, but realize that the half-life will accumulate and overlap each other. So for example, if a patient has a high alcohol tolerance and you normally would dose them two to 400 milligrams of Librium in the first 24 hours, phenobarbital and Librium are actually quite equipotent. And so, you know, 50 milligrams of Librium is equivalent to about, about 64 milligrams of Librium. So, excuse me, of phenobarbital. So you could dose them 64 milligrams of phenobarbital four to eight times that day if you would rather piece it out in smaller amounts because you're worried about over sedation. And then over the next couple of days, slowly taper them down. And we actually use that a lot for benzodiazepine withdrawal because you have a very anxious person. You don't want to snow them completely in the beginning like alcohol patients, but you dose them several times a day and then you reduce the dose by 20 or 25% each day watching for that cumulative amount to never exceed 20 megs per kg of ideal body weight and of course monitoring for sedation and you put in your protocol or you put in your orders for your nurses to really watch and monitor for respiratory depression sedation ataxia nystagmus because at any point you want to stop dosing because remember such a long half-life you're not gonna be able to back it up if people really go beyond and get really snowed but there's a good paper, Darlene, that was written, um, published in American Journal of Critical Care in 2018 by author Tidwell et al. called The Treatment of Alcohol Withdrawal Syndrome, Phenobarbital versus CWAR AR Protocol. Because, you know, what do we do and when, what's the outcome of just using a regular CWAR protocolized approach where you're giving like PRN, lorazepam or diazepam versus this um, phenobarb? And they did look at this. They wanted to compare the standard of care for treatment of alcohol with a symptom-triggered benzodiazepine protocol using CWA with a uh, phenobarb protocol. And what they did is do a retrospective cohort study. And they looked over like 18 months at a 42-bed hospital. So not a very, no, excuse me, not a hospital, 42-bed intensive care unit. So this is intensive care patients. And what they looked at was length of stay 
And they also looked at incidents of uh, mechanical ventilation and also adjunctive pharmacology. And what they found is the patients who received the phenobarbital versus the patients who received the um, CUR protocolized benzodiazepine uh, management had significantly shorter stays in the ICU. So they stayed in the ICU 2.4 days versus 4.4. And those who received phenobarbital in the hospital, so transitioning to the med surge or the med floor, had significantly shorter hospital stays versus those who got the CWAR benzodiazepine protocol. The difference was 4.3 days versus 6.9, which is actually quite a big difference. When you think that 6.9 is about normal, right, for yeah. hospital-based alcohol mm-hmm. withdrawal management. So if you can reduce that to four days, that has a huge impact for people who need to go back to work or the cost, cost of resources, et cetera. And then looking at those other two secondary outcomes, the incidence of invasive mechanical ventilation was lower in the phenobarb group. So there dispels the myth that a lot of people are nervous of using phenobarb. They think it's more dangerous than benzos. It's not necessarily true. And um, they also saw a decreased use of adjunctive medications for symptom control, including dexmedetomidine, which, as we know, has to be used in the ICU. So, I mean, there's lots of papers on this. If you're interested in it, go on and look on Google Scholar or look on PubMed and you will read lots of papers. There have there are some papers that dispute it. And you see some papers saying that it wasn't didn't make a difference in length of stay. Uh, but overall, it seems like overwhelmingly, the majority is that it does reduce stays and use of medication and other outcomes. So um, the regimen, I would go with the regimens that are published, 10 mg per kg of ideal body weight, IV, if you've got a lot of support like ICU available support, or you want to do an oral approach, you can do a loading dose protocol and monitor closely and pull back as soon as people have responded because then it's going to taper or you can do a tapered protocol where you give them you know 100 to 200 milligrams approximately of phenobarbital per day and taper it down from there 25 25 per day um, and keep an eye on them by the time they leave that they're not going to suddenly accumulate after the time that they've left no i think that's great all right paula so in conclusion, so what's our key points that we need to remember about phenobarbital? Well, I think the key points are it can be very helpful for the treatment of alcohol and or benzodiazepine withdrawal in the right person. It has some contraindications because of its long half-life and the fact that it's metabolized through the P450 system in the liver. So you do not want to use it in patients who are older, patients with liver disease, renal disease, lung disease. You don't want to use it in pregnancy. It does have a risk of abuse, withdrawal, suicide. Never give patients like a prescription of phenobarbital and send them out, you know. And we've talked before in our alcohol withdrawal management podcast in season one about discerning who's appropriate for inpatient versus outpatient alcohol withdrawal management. And I have to say, phenobarbital should be reserved for inpatient management. However, I think we're going to see phenobarbital used more in the outpatient setting with the right monitoring and the right selection. And um, it needs to be only used if you have experience using it. So don't be scared of it, but you don't want to suddenly start floating it around because it does interact with so many things and it does cause respiratory d- depression. Um, it can be helpful because it acts on the brain in two different ways versus kind of one main way that benzos can. 
and um, we've got some good protocols on how to use it. And um, I think, you know, it seems like in the research, it reduces emergency room return visits, also reduces hospital stays, mechanical ventilation and adjunctive therapies. And I think it's something to keep an eye on. And I know that a lot of the physicians and providers in our emergency department are using it and they're interested in it. They're asking because there have been some key publications from emergency medicine journals and critical care journals on the use of this as opposed to benzos. And benzos really can be really problematic for some people. So it's nice to have an option. Mm -hmm. One great resource for you all, if you want to learn more about this, there's a really great resource online um, called the Internet Book of Critical Care. It's called EM Crit. And they have a great um, kind of document and material on the advantages of phenobarbital over benzos. So we can put that in the show notes so you can reference that. That's great. Thank you, Paula. That is fantastic. And have a good night. Until next time. Hey, check us out at theaddictionfiles.com or email us at theaddictionfiles at gmail.com. Thank you so much to Ricky Valides for use of his song, Awake. Check him out at rickyvalides.com. purposes only. Hosts and guests are not responsible for any harm caused by information obtained from the source. As each person is unique, you are advised to seek the advice of your own healthcare professional to treat any medical conditions you may be having. Opinions expressed on the show are those of the addiction files and not of our respective employers.